Published this week is a new investigation on US dietary guidelines that affect tens of millions of US citizens by the US journalist Nina Teicholz. She joins us now. Uh, Nina, you're a journalist and um, looking at your track record, you've been um, attracted to this topic for, for quite some years now. I believe you, you wrote a book on food and dietary guidelines. I wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise that came out last year and that was um, a deep dive into nutrition science that I started a little over a decade ago where I got interested in the subject of dietary fat, you know, what we've obsessed about most, good fat, bad fat, how much fat to eat. And after 10 years of pouring through all the research, um, I just came to the conclusion that everything we thought about dietary fat was really upside down and wrong. And um, that was what became my book. And what kind of reaction did you get to your book? Well, it was a bestseller um, internationally, and uh, it received an enormous amount of attention. Um, but it, there was also a kind of silence about it. In um, you know, it's very critical of the institutions that have brought us our nutrition guidelines, and so there was a response, say, for example, from the American Heart Association saying, um, we stand by our guidelines and don't pay any attention to that book <laughs> without mentioning it, the title. But, you know, overall, the reaction's been excellent. I got it. I have you know, been reviewed in, in major medical journals, and, and it's been taken quite seriously. But as you say, there's a, there's a major public thirst for, for, for evidence-based material about the food we eat and dietary guidelines. I mean, how would you characterize a debate about food in today's climate? Well, you know, most people, I think, are just so frustrated by the kind of flip-flopping headlines they see, and they feel confused, and they don't feel a, the sense of any sense of confidence in what they're hearing. Um, and um, and the debate in the nutrition among nutrition science scientists is actually far more intense than people realize. I mean, there's there are now um, sort of major. Um, arguments about, you know, to what extent fat makes you fat or causes disease, and especially now, uh, sort of the cutting edge of that argument is about saturated fats, and there have been a number of paper really challenging the link between saturated fats and heart disease. So, um, so, and there's a groundswell of people who are now eating quite differently, restricting carbohydrates as a way of, of overcoming obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, and so there is this kind of collision course now between this growing new knowledge and um, at the traditional view about what makes a healthy diet. Well, that, 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 that brings us nicely to the U.S. dietary guidelines, which I suppose we could say characterize the kind of traditional view of what makes a healthy diet. Um, these, these, these dietary guidelines, I believe they're updated every five years. They are highly influential um, and probably the most influential in the world. And then, as you say, they're guidelines which affect, what, tens of millions of U.S. citizens? They really affect nutrition globally. I mean, because our dietary guidelines in 1980, which were launched in 1980, they were then adopted by um, by countries and WHO and, 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 and adopted all over the world. And they affect nearly all um, Americans in the sense that they are then translated into the advice that your doctors give when you go to your doctor, your nutritionist, all of that comes from the dietary guideline. They also affect all of our feeding programs like school lunches and feeding programs for the poor, for the elderly, for our military. And I'm right in thinking so, about a quarter of U.S. citizens are, do, do have food from the, the programs. Exactly. One in four Americans has one of those meals every month. Mm -hmm. So it's an enormous impact. 
and and not just in the US. I know they are they are issued by the US government, but they have an impact on the Western world. Right, precisely because our guidelines and and have been adopted more or less by all governments or most governments around the world. Um, so they they just have been tremendously influential. I mean, I recently heard about a conference in Malaysia where they were talking about the U.S. dietary guidelines because um, that affects what they can, what their own country considers to be healthy, and what they can sell around the world. You know, because their trade is going on globally. Mm. So, um, so the the dietary guidelines affect all of that. So, as seeing as they are so influential, people put a lot of trust into these guidelines. And and what what we're discussing today is whether that trust trust is justified or not. I mean, we, we one would expect that these guidelines are incredibly rigorous; that they adhere to um, the the best practice. Um, perhaps you could start off by telling us who draws these guidelines up. Well, <clears throat> the government appoints a, a expert committee of anywhere between eleven and fifteen nutrition researchers, um, and they are the committee that does the main work for um, pulling together the science and writing the report. And um, and that <clears throat> committee, it used to be, well, when the guidelines started, they, were, they didn't really do much reviewing of the science. Now we have the latest expert committee report, which came out earlier this year, is a 571-page document. Um, mm. And it has a staff of people in our agricultural um, department in, in Washington, D.C., and those people searched the literature uh, to on on various topics. So one would imagine that it's an incredibly rigorous look at the science. Um, but uh, one of the things that I mean, one of the things that's what's curious and really, if you follow nutrition science and you realize that maybe there's something that's not quite right here, is that um, you know, for instance, on saturated fats, there have been a number of high-level papers in the last five years really challenging the link between saturated fats and heart disease. They've been taken very seriously in the research community, but there's no trace of reckoning with them in the expert report, and that really makes you wonder, well, why not? Um, so, so why so, not? Because I, I understand that the, the scientific rigor of these guidelines was slightly under fire before, and, and didn't the government set up a kind of an evidence library to address this? Exactly. Well, Astonishingly, the dietary guidelines when they were founded in 1980, um, and this is a story that I write about in my book, they were, they really were the product of um, a congressional committee that decided that fat and saturated fats were bad for health, and that was the work of a of a staffer on the committee who, um, who wasn't had no science background and just wrote a report, um, sort of saying he had talked to some scientists and that's what he concluded. That then was sent over to become the policy that was the, the dietary guidelines. And in fact, most of those clinical trials underpinning those recommendations were never systematically reviewed by any dietary guideline committee. Mm. So the process was very weak and flawed from the start. And then just recently in, in 2010, there was this major effort to try to in, insert um, the, the our agricultural department set up something called the Nutrition Evidence Library, and that is supposed to contain all the important scientific literature, and there was an effort to use systematic reviews mm -hmm. for the 2010 dietary guidelines. Um, it was really a major undertaking to try to improve the rigor of the review system. Mm -hmm. and, and and so 
this year there's got a new set of um, proposed guidelines out from the committee that you've just described. Um, what were the crucial topics that they were um, looking at? Was it sort of salt, sugar, saturated fats? What were, what were the areas that they were selecting evidence? Well, I didn't review every area, but I but I can say that were the ones that I really looked at um, in detail and our major recommendations, key recommendations. Um, those are the link between saturated fats and heart disease, which turns out to um, which the committee reviewed in a sort of non-systematic way, and also on um, carbohydrate-restricted diets, mm. of which there's been a tremendous amount of, of yeah. published literature in the last 10 years, just a huge amount, which was not reviewed by the committee. So the, the, the key recommendations are still for low-fat diets, rich in vegetables, and um, what, what, what sort of recommendations do they have to make around meat? So they have a list of healthy foods that they recommend that people eat, and this time they've suggested removing lean meat from that list. And they've also suggest, um, as part of their core guidelines, reducing red and processed meat. So they are continuing their advice to eat more fruits and vegetables. There's a new emphasis on reducing meat, especially red meat. Um, and there is... Um, and there's a continued advice to limit saturated fats to 10% of calories, which limits the amount of um, meat, dairy, eggs that, that people can eat. Um, so there is kind of a new emphasis on more fruits and vegetables and less meat. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you just said, there's, there is concern, isn't there, that these guidelines to date have failed to have a positive effect in, in, in curbing obesity rates and, you know, um, the... Um, epidemic of, of diabetes in, in the US as in many Western countries. Uh, am I right in thinking that these concerns have reached a higher level this year, that there's going to be debated in government? There's concern about the dietary guidelines not combating, successfully combating obesity and diabetes, and there have been this year just concern about the guidelines generally, about the process in which they came about, about this new meat recommendation there's debate over the sugar recommendation. So there were, in fact, 29,000 public comments over the this expert committee report when in the last go-around there were only 2,000, which just shows wow. a huge level of concern. Mm. And, in fact, there will be a, a hearing in Congress to which both um, cabinet secretaries involved in the guidelines will be coming. So that's two cabinet secretaries who will be testifying before Congress next month. So can you explain the significance of that? Is that, that that's, that's kind of quite huge, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's not happened before in relation to these dietary guidelines. I don't know if there's ever been a congressional hearing before, but I do know from people who follow this process in Washington that the, the level of concern is really unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, as you say, I mean, it's it's the the continued rise in obesity, diabetes. And in fact, there's a, if you look at the government's data, the obesity epidemic really took off in the very year that the dietary guidelines were founded in 1980. So that, um, you know, it's a correlation, it's not causation, but it is suggestive and, and worrisome. So Nina, you've investigated some of these issues in your article, which is now online on bfj.com. Can you think, have you sort of thought of a way ahead? Have you got any recommendations to what could be done to improve the situation? Well, I think um, that, you know, one of the core issues that 
that really undermines the guidelines is that they um, they don't reflect the kind of the balance of new, of expert opinion out there mm-hmm. in um, among researchers, and so there needs to be some. And, and the process has somehow been captured by scientists who really on one side of the issue, and there's no transparency in the way those those particular scientists are appointed to the expert committee. So I think um, probably. Uh, it would, and this is one thing that Congress could do to have an unbiased, balanced expert panel from an, an outside group. I mean, the best one in the United States would be the National Academy of Sciences, now the National Academy of Medicine, to review both the process of the dietary guidelines, how they're conducted, how the expert committee is selected, and also the actual science. You know, why do we have the recommendations that we do, and is it based on good science? And I suppose also, to be sure, you have a sort of a truly independent panel of scientists, you know, free from conflicts of interest. The committee should declare any potential conflicts of interest, which I believe they currently don't need to do. Yes, unlike uh, in most medical journals, including yours, when uh, an author needs to to declare their potential conflict of interest so that a reader can make a judgment. And that is not true of the dietary guidelines process. So, yes, it, you know, it, it certainly ought to be. Um, you know, I would say in this case, it's certainly having funding from food and drug companies is um, will have an influence or, or could have an influence. And, and this year, in this committee for the first time, uh, the chair of the committee actually is not from academia. She she's a, the owner of a company that um, that does nutrition, gives nutrition counseling and advice and, and technological solutions mm-hmm. for diet. Um, but I don't think that you know. I think equally important to those financial potential conflicts of interest are just the professional ones, which is that this is you know generations now of researchers who've come to endorse a certain kind of nutrition paradigm, a, you know, a healthy diet, what is a healthy diet, and and challenges to that are, um, are you know, are a, a professional conflict of interest. So there are many forms of bias, um, and, and the process ought to protect against all of them. So to restore our trust in these guidelines, we need transparency, scientific rigor, and, and consistency, I suppose. Transparency, scientific rigor, and protection against bias. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good. Well, Nina, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. That was Nina Teischoltz, whose investigation you can read on bmj.com this week.